Welcome to Rancho Baptist Church. This message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning services. And to celebrate Palm Sunday this morning, Pastor Jason has prepared a sermon from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 54, in a sermon he's entitled, The Coming of the King. Join us now as we celebrate this Palm Sunday. Here's Jason. Turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 19. And today we are going to look at the triumphal entry of Christ. Verses 28 to 44. Which says, After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the crowd, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would use Your Word to penetrate our hearts and to allow us to to grasp anew the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. That You would speak to us through Your Word. That You would prepare our hearts for the wonderful celebration and and memorial that we're going to enter into later on this week, remembering your crucifixion and your resurrection. But today, we get to behold our King coming into Jerusalem. So go before us now. In Jesus' name, amen.
I've, en- I've entitled this, this sermon, The Coming of the King, and, and, and yet it's, it's ironic because I think in so many aspects it's difficult for us to grasp what's happening here. I, I believe if, if, if you and I had possibly grown up in England or even in a, in a different time era where, where there were monarchs, and, and we had seen that the, the handing off of the mantle, the, the, the taking off of the one crown and, and, and setting it upon the, the head of another, that, that perhaps we'd understand and we'd grasp the significance of what is pictured for us in these verses. But at least me, I, I don't so much. Why? Because th- this, this isn't the context of, of, of who I am, where I'm from. I, I don't live in a, in a place where there is a sovereign over his nation. And yet in times past, we, we recognize that, that, that there have been kings and as one king is stepping out of his majesty and everything and, and another king is brought in, it's done with pomp and circumstance, much ado and great majesty, right? The, the whole nation stops what they are doing and, and, and they stop for this time and they come together. And usually it happens in the capital city. And that king is paraded around. And everyone comes and they're rejoicing. It's just a time of jubilation. And then at some point it it turns a little bit more formal. And the king then is dressed in royal regalia with with the the nicest robes that could be worn with jewels and everything else in it. And at some point he's giving something to denote this new position. And, and, and that could be a, a royal scepter or a crown, or in the case of, of the Jews, it was an anointing of oil, right? That designated this is to be the new king. And yet the coming of our king, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't quite look like that. It's, it's altogether different. And while Jesus is welcomed as the king and even inaugurated as the king, It just seems to fall short. Why? Because this is the king of all kings. This is the name above all names. This is the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's never been a king like him. And yet, even in this, what we'll see, this, this really is his last major public appearance before the crucifixion. And while many would say this is all about the triumphal entry, I believe there's a lot more to this than just his soon-to-be entrance into Jerusalem. And what we're going to see today is, I've broken this in, into two very simple points in your, in your outline. The coming of the king and the crying of the king. And, and I believe that that is what's being emphasized here. And that is what we're going to see. The coming of the king in verses 28 to 38 and the crying of the king, he wraps up in verses 39 to 44. So first, let's, let's see exactly what the Lord is communicating to us through this, through the coming of the king. Look at, Verses 28 to 31 with me. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. It gives us the idea that Jesus himself, by himself, is going on ahead of 
his disciples. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Don't miss the significance of what is happening here. Where is Jesus heading? He is heading to Jerusalem. He is heading to a specific place. And if we had been walking through the book of Luke as we have been walking through the book of Acts, we would have noticed that everything that he is doing is leading up to this point, to this place, to this time. The arriving at Jerusalem signifies the arrival at the goal for which Jesus had come. The predetermined plan of the Father given to the Son that He would become what? The sacrificial Lamb. It should also not go unnoticed what time this is happening at. This is happening during the Passover. And so it would not be just Jesus that is heading to Jerusalem, but many, many Jews. Thousands, if not millions of Jews are heading to Jerusalem. Why? To celebrate the Passover. Why? To offer lambs in their place, in their stead, for their sins. And yet, isn't it ironic that the true Lamb of God is arriving in Jerusalem to offer His own life? And so we see that that Jesus then goes on ahead and He arrives near these these two cities, Bethphage, which hardly anything is known about this place. And Bethany, which much is known about Bethany. It's a city that that we've seen before. It's located close to Jerusalem within one and a half to two miles. It's also the city where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. And it's a city that that overlooks the city of Jerusalem. And and turn with me to to John's Gospel. John chapter 12. for, For there's something that John gives us in his Gospel that's very telling. As far as the time sequence goes here. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. What day is this when when Jesus arrives in Bethany? It says here, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of perfume, very costly perfume, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, preparing his body for what lies ahead. What's significant is, is it says that, that when this day was, it was six days before the Passover. They celebrated the Passover on a certain day, on the 14th day of the month, actually. So if this is six days before that, that this would have been happening on a Saturday. And then John tells us in the same chapter that that many came to see Lazarus who had been raised from the dead and Jesus spent time there the next day which would have been Sunday. So I don't want to shatter 
everybody's perceptions. But, but many believe then that the day that Jesus is actually entering into Jerusalem is on a Monday. And since we don't meet on Monday, I believe it's perfectly fine for us to gather and celebrate Palm Sunday, which most likely is probably a Palm Monday. And, and why is this significant? Because the Jewish people would often receive their lambs for the Passover well before the Passover. In fact, they'd receive it five days before the Passover. They'd receive it on the tenth day of the month. And then the Passover would happen on the fourteenth. So if you do your math, and if, and if you looked into it to see exactly when what day fell in history in Jerusalem at this time, do you know what the tenth day of the month but it's going to be that monday so everyone is going to get their lamb which they are going to sacrifice they're going to receive that lamb on that monday hold it in their homes keep an eye on it until friday when they will sacrifice it and yet what we see here is on this very monday is when they receive the lord jesus christ but on friday what are they going to do to him they are going to crucify him But it's not just Bethany that, that I believe is important. Not just Bethany that's significant, but, but look at where these places are located. Near the mount called Olivet. We, we've already seen the mount called Olivet as we've walked through the book of Acts. We saw it early in Acts 1.13. Do you remember as Jesus ascends into heaven and His disciples are just gazing at Him? Do you remember where they were? They were right here. This is where Jesus ascends. But it's not significant just for that reason. It's significant for what will happen in the future. And our Lord Jesus' return. Do do you recognize that the Lord Jesus' second coming, His return, really has two stages? The first stage then is, is known as the rapture. And what's significant about the rapture is that it happens in the air. Jesus never actually comes and puts His feet down upon the earth. He comes and gathers the church, but it's in the air. Do you know where Jesus comes and actually puts His feet down in the second coming? It's in the second aspect. Talked about in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 and 5, or in Revelation 19, 17 to 21. And in, in those verses, it gives the, us the miraculous understanding that He's going to come back to this place, to this mount called Olivet. And, and there He's going to wipe out the enemies of the remnant of Israel. Those that are raising up to, to go after Israel in, in what many people call the Battle of Armageddon. So, so this mountain is significant. And this is a place that God is going to use again, that He's going to showcase. So Jesus gets to this point, and He stops, and He tells His disciples, okay, now go on ahead, go to this village, and and there you're going to find this colt tied up. And, And let me just give a little clarification, because you, like I, might be thinking, well, wait, Pastor Jason, is it a colt, is it a horse, or is it a donkey? Because I thought it was a donkey. And let me just clarify, so Luke uses a word that's a more general word that could include a horse or a donkey. 
But if we go to Matthew and we go to John, we see that he uses a more specific word that only includes the donkey. So that's why everyone says, oh no, this was a donkey, not a horse. But what's what's really amazing is to notice how detailed and definitive Jesus is regarding this donkey. Is he not? Some commentators say, oh, well, that's because he'd gone there the day before and worked everything. No, it doesn't say anything like that. The reason why he knows all this is because he is indeed God. And, and so we see him characterize four things that's going to happen. First, he tells them its exact location. Right as you arrive into this city, boom, there it's going to be. He also says the state that it's going to be in. It's going to be tied up. He also gives the history that it's unwritten. It's not a tame animal and then finally he says how to acquire it and so then what happens next look at verse 32 and we'll read to 34 so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them as they were untying the colt its owner said to them why are you untying the colt they said the Lord has need of it Isn't it wonderful how Jesus' control is so perfectly presented? He knew exactly what was going to happen and exactly how He said it was going to unfold is the way that it unfolds. The Greek makes it clear that, that they were already untying it. That they were following even the sequence on the way that Jesus told them this was going to work. Okay, you go, you find it, He's tied up. You go ahead and start untying Him. As these guys come up and ask you the question, boom, this is how you answer. Did you notice how they answered? exactly verbatim the way that Jesus told them to answer. Revealing to us their obedience. The Lord has need of it. But isn't it gracious of our Lord, even in this account, to tell His disciples, okay, this is how you're going to handle it, because I, I would think that as they are untying this donkey, And they are asked, well, what are you doing? No doubt they're thinking, oh my, these guys probably think we're stealing this donkey. And all they have to do is say the Lord has need of it. And and, okay, that's fine. Another account. Interestingly enough, do you know that the triumphal entry is in every one of the Gospels? All four of them. As if to show us how important it is. And several of the other Gospels say that they actually then let them go with the animal. But then what happens? Look at verses 35 and and 36. For that was enough to pacify them. And obviously they were able to take the donkey. Then look at 35. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As He was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. So they they bring this donkey to Jesus, this colt. And then what do they do? They put their coats on top of it, making a sort of a makeshift saddle for Jesus. This whole scene is reminiscent of what we see in, in back in First Kings and the, and the passing off of the mantle of, of David to his son Solomon, of kingship. 
as, as in 1 Kings 1.33, David tells his soldiers to take Solomon to Gihon on a mule, showing David's full endorsement of Solomon as king. And that is what God is doing here. He is showing his full endorsement of Jesus as the king through what we are about to see. The accolades, the even of Jesus. And yet we, we must stop and recognize that this represents so much more. Because this was the God of the universe, clothed in humanity, being recognized as the coming king. Yet where is his kingly robe studded with all those jewels? Where's the majestic white stallion? Where are the horns and the trumpets? Where is that great big army proceeding with him? None of that is here. Why? Because this is not the time of his glory, of his glorification. This really is the time of his humiliation, of him humbling himself. Because he had not come to wield his powerful sword and destroy his enemies or the enemies of Israel, but he'd he'd come to lay his own life down in order to destroy sin and to save man. Isn't it interesting that now a donkey bears our Lord, but within a week's time, we will see that he will be bearing his own cross. We see this too, that as he was going, what do they do? They, they take their coats and they, and they spread them on the road. This was an ancient custom where you would throw your garments down before the king and let him ride over them. This was a way of, of revealing that, that you had a respect towards that particular king and reverence towards him. And that you were submitting to him as your sovereign. And no doubt this points back to Zechariah 9.9. And even the fulfillment of this passage, listen. Where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was some 500 years before the coming of Jesus. And yet, this is exactly the way that it plays out. Why? Because God is sovereign. Jesus is God. It's going to work out exactly the way that God has planned. But He's not coming as a mighty military conqueror. He is coming as a lowly Prince of Peace. And in order to to truly do Palm Sunday justice... We, we have to recognize that, well, Pastor Jason doesn't say anything about the palm branches here in Luke's account. And if we were to turn to Matthew 21, verse 8, or even Mark 11, verse 8, you'd see there that it wasn't just garments that they're laying down. But they're actually taking palm branches and they're cutting them and, and they're laying them, them down as well, spreading them on the road. And there is significance behind palm branches because they connote The idea of joy and salvation. As well as a tribute to the king. But each gospel writer is is describing this event in their own words, from their own perspective, their own vantage point, and to different audiences. And perhaps the reason why Luke does not go into that kind of detail is because his audience are Gentiles. And they wouldn't understand the significance behind the palm branches. 
But that does not mean that the palm branches were not there. So then what, what happens next? As soon as he was approaching, look at verses 37 and 38. This is taking quite a while to get through. Right? As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Shouting, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. No doubt the disciples had much to rejoice about, right? They had seen Jesus in action. They had seen His miracle after miracle that included all sorts of wonderful things such as the deaf can now speak, the blind can see, the lame can walk, the lepers are cleansed. And in and, and all of this, He continues to preach on the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And then this leads them as they're considering all of this to shout, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. We know that other gospel writers add a little bit more to exactly what they were saying. And they account this as well, that they would say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Do you know what Hosanna means? It it literally means save now or save us now. That's what they are saying. Save us now. But again, perhaps there wasn't the past history for those that Luke was writing for to understand what Hosanna would mean and so he didn't even include it. But we can understand. They are saying, save us now. What did they want? They wanted their Messiah to come and conquer Rome and to free them from the oppression of their captors. But Jesus had come to do what? To free them from their sin. All four Gospels tell us that the crowd cried, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet only Luke and John refer to Jesus as the king. Mark refers to a kingdom, but doesn't talk about Jesus as the king. What's understood in all of their accounts is the kingship of Jesus is implied. The kingdom of Jesus is implied. Perhaps all of those present were desiring for Jesus to claim His kingdom. Right here, right now on this day. Perhaps they thought that this was going to happen. But we know that it didn't happen. And why is that? Because there is no kingdom without first the cross. He must die for sins before He can establish His glory and His throne on this earth. But this isn't what the people wanted. They wanted their King now to do what they wanted on their terms. The words and the choruses of the people, I believe they were right, but their hearts were wrapped up with what they wanted. Aren't many people the same today? That that they're coming to God on on, on their terms and they're constructing God in their own little image and they're listening to men saying that what this is all about, what Christianity is all about is, is wealth, 
health and, and prosperity when, when what Jesus is all about is about saving people from their sins. About granting salvation. And while their hearts might not have been wrapped up in the right thing, at least these that were there were willing to consider the possibility that He might truly be their King. And that that was why He had come. This is better than the Jewish leaders, right? Much better than the Jewish leaders. Because the Jewish leaders, they don't want to call Jesus the Messiah. They don't want to call Him the King. They don't want to call him prophet. They don't want to call him priest. And I believe it's this that that then starts to change the emphasis. As as we see that the, the prep for the crying of the king. Look at verses 39 and 40 as we see the way that these men respond. These leaders of the nation of Israel. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. You know, of all the accounts, this is the only place where we see this dialogue between Jesus and, and the Pharisees here. The Pharisees no doubt recognized that they had no power over the people. They could not tell the people, hey, stop doing this. So what do they do? They petition Jesus to stop. All of this praise and adoration. And yet look at Jesus' response. It's both powerful and penetrating. Jesus said, if If these become silent, then the very stones will cry out. Isn't this interesting that that if we had been walking through the book of Luke, we would have noticed time and time again that Jesus, instead of elevating Himself and, and sounding out a bullhorn as to who He is, and when the demons themselves say who He is, instead of saying, oh yes, shout louder, He silences them. And when people are say are are miraculously healed, say a leper... Instead of sending them off as a spokesman, oftentimes he sends them back to the temple to go through the normal ritual that they would go through. In essence, kind of keeping a lid on who he is. And yet here, this is a time where Jesus says, absolutely not. This is right. This is the way that it should go. He didn't want to hide who He was. He wanted to enter the city openly as the promised Messiah. As the King of His people. But think of the significance of His response. He says, if the disciples do not cry out, then the creation creation would. In essence, Jesus is saying rather emphatically that inanimate objects, i.e. stones that are not living, that do not have a soul, that do not even have a mind, that they have a better perception of what God is doing than those that Jesus came to save. Than the very nation that God had called unto Himself that had been gifted with the very Word of God. The leaders of that nation that study the Word of God. That they were clueless. 
And yet the very stones themselves that can't speak, they would speak. Just imagine that. And so this this rejection of the rulers no doubt broke his heart. And, And we can see that in the next two verses. Look at 41 and 42. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. I, I believe that the emphasis of, of, of this text and this depiction of Jesus' triumphal entry has all been pointing to this point. You see, if, if we turn back in, in Luke to chapter 19 with what just happened, look at 1911 to 13 and this parable that Jesus gives, which says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So we know what their mind was. That is what they were thinking. But look at and listen to this parable. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. So a nobleman goes to be crowned as the king and then come back. Look at 13. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minus and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. I believe that is the picture. That these that are now rejoicing over their king, they really didn't want their king in the way that he was coming. And this is represented in the way the leaders look at him. The way that the leaders ask him to tell them to be quiet. They they didn't want Jesus coming as a suffering servant. They just wanted him coming as a conquering king. And so what happens as Jesus approaches Jerusalem? Recognize this. He still is not in Jerusalem. Do you know when he, when we see him arriving in Jerusalem? Well, well, Luke doesn't even tell us Jerusalem. Look at verse 45. We know that Jesus is in Jerusalem at 45. Before that, He's not. He's still approaching Jerusalem when all of this is transpiring. Why? Because when He gets to Jerusalem, it's time for the cross. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it's written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. There we know he's in Jerusalem, even though Luke doesn't tell us that he actually entered into Jerusalem, but he's there because that's where the temple is. Why is this significant? Because I believe that, yes, it's it's important that he has been inaugurated as the king. But it's equally, if not more important, for all of us to grasp the significance that they did not get it. That their hearts were far from him. 
And, and as a result, what does he do? He sees the city and he weeps over it. As Jesus can actually see the city, now he's struck with the sadness of the moment. As he recognizes that it's not just the leaders of the nation of Israel that have rejected him, but quite possibly it could be that those that are before him, praising him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, that these are the very ones that he knows on Friday are going to be screaming, crucify him. And so what does he do? He weeps. That, that, that translates weak. Don't, don't think of it as you just watched some sad movie and you're sitting next to your kids and you're trying to let them see it's just a small little tear coming down and it dries by the time it hits your jaw. This is literally a, a full sobbing, a wailing. Sometimes it's uncontrolled, uncontrollable sobbing. He can't stop himself from crying. This is heart anguish. And why is he sobbing? Because he recognizes what the rejection of him means to his people. And he recognizes that this is going to bring national judgment upon the people of Israel. And verse 42 is, is, is quite telling. Where he says this, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. In the Greek, that, that, that's a conditional statement. That's why it has an if there. And, and the Greek is much like our Siawi language back in Papua New Guinea. They have contrary to fact Conditional clauses where one half of, of the clause is actually left out because it's understood. It's, it's known. And that's what's going on here. It's contrary to fact. If you only knew, but you don't. You don't know. You don't get it. You don't understand. If you did get it, peace would be here. I am peace. I am offering peace. But you don't get it. It's powerful. Rather than peace, what comes? Look at 43 and 44. Let me close with this. Judgment. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children with, within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is prophetic. This happens. Very soon, within 40 years, in A.D. 70, what happens? The Romans come in. And they wipe out Jerusalem. And many historians say they don't just wipe out Jerusalem. They wipe out Jerusalem. Everyone in it. And it's not just stones that are piled. It's people. This is terrible. And this destruction happens. Why? It tells us why. It tells us the very reason. Because they did not recognize the time of your visitation, a.k.a. the time of your Messiah, the time of your Redeemer. He has come, but you rejected Him. For God had indeed come to His people, but they didn't recognize Him. Which brings us to the point, how about you this morning? Do, do you get it? Do you understand the significance why Jesus came? Why it's even important for us to understand this triumphal entry? Because it points to the fact of who He is. 
that He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And, and don't be like the Jews this day who rejoiced in the moment of their, of their coming of their king, but they missed their Messiah. Just being a Jew didn't guarantee them entrance into the kingdom. They had to trust in Christ as their Messiah, as their substitutionary lamb, as the one who took their sin debt. And don't think for a moment that just coming to church every Sunday is going to give you entrance into the kingdom as well. Also, don't think for a moment just because your parents are believers that you can somehow piggyback on their belief. Like getting their Costco card and hoping that they don't recognize that that it's not your picture on there, it's your dad's. That's not going to happen when it comes to eternity. When you stand before God in judgment. It will be you and Him. And the only way to escape this kind of judgment that happens to Jerusalem is for you to trust in Christ. And to trust in Him alone. And if any of you are in the position where you do not know what would happen if you were to die today, please turn to Christ. Trust in Him for salvation. Recognize that you are a sinner. There's nothing you can do to earn your own salvation. You can't come to church. It's not a matter of you doing more good than bad. God is perfect. He requires perfect. Praise the Lord. Jesus is perfect. And He is the only Lamb that God would accept as our substitute. You can come and talk with some of us after the service if you want to discuss this more fully. Really quickly, points to ponder. Consider how Jesus had complete control, isn't this cool, over his entrance into Jerusalem with the exact choosing of this donkey. He knew everything. Jesus is directing all these events, including where and how the donkey is going to be tied up. Is it not true that this fact then that He has completely control over all things, is also true concerning your life. How does this affect you and influence the way you think, the way you pray, the way you act? Or does it not? Number two, think of the significance of what Jesus is saying. If the disciples did not cry out, then creation would. In essence, Jesus is saying rather emphatically that inanimate objects, rocks, have a better perception of what God is doing than do the people that Jesus came to save, His people. I wonder, how perceptive are you to what God is doing right now? Or are you like these? Only seeing what you want to see instead of what God is actually communicating in His Word and showing all around you through the teaching of His Word, through counsel that you're receiving from people that abide by His Word. Let me close our time. Heavenly Father, it is so good to consider Jesus, to walk with Him as He walks to Calvary, for us to see that He is the King, the King above all kings, that He is the Savior, the only Savior 
the only way to you. That He is the one that holds eternal life in His hands. And it's also telling for us to see that many miss that. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't miss that, that we wouldn't miss you, that we wouldn't miss what you were doing, but that you would get a grip on us, that we would understand what you were doing, and that we would behold you for the great King that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.